Section 8 of About Orchids A Chat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Yearsley. About Orchids A Chat by Frederick Boyle. Chapter 5, Section 2 Warm Orchids. It is just the same case with Loelia ancaps alba. The genus Loelia is distinguished from Cattleya by a peculiarity to be remarked only in dissection. Its pollen masses are eight, as against four. To my taste, however, the species are more charming on the whole. There is Loelia purpurata. Casual observers always find it hard to grasp the fact that orchids are weeds in their native homes, just like foxgloves and dandelions with us. In this instance, as I have noted, they flatly refuse to believe, and certainly, upon the face of it, their incredulity is reasonable. Loelia purpurata falls under the head of hot orchids. Loelia anceps, however, is not so exacting. Many people grow it in the cool house when they can expose it there to the full blaze of sunshine. In its commonest form it is divinely beautiful. I have seen a plant in Mr. Eastie's collection with twenty-three spikes, the flowers all open at once. Such a spectacle is not to be described in prose. But when the enthusiast has rashly said that earth contains no more ethereal loveliness, let him behold Loelia anceps alba, the white variety. The dullest man I ever knew, who had a commonplace for all occasions, found no word in presence of that marvel. Even the half-castes of Mexico, who have no soul apparently for things above horse-flesh and cock-fights and love-making, reverence this saintly bloom. The Indians adore it, like their brethren to the south, who have tenderly removed every plant of Cattleya skinneri alba for generations unknown to set upon their churches. They collect this supreme effort of nature and replant it round their huts. So thoroughly has the work been done in either case that no single specimen was ever seen in the forest. Every one has been bought from the Indians, and the supply is exhausted. That is to say, a good many more are known to exist, but very rarely now can the owner be persuaded to part with one. The first example reached England nearly half a century ago, sent probably by a native trader to his correspondent in this country, but as was usual at that time the circumstances are doubtful. It found its way somehow to Mr. Dawson of Meadowbank, a famous collector, and by him it was divided. Search was made for the treasure in its home, but vainly. Travellers did not look in the Indian gardens. No more arrived for many years. Mr. Sander once conceived a fine idea. He sent one of his collectors to gather Loelia Ancaps Alba, at the season when it is in bud, with an intention of startling the universe by displaying a mass of them in full bloom. They were still more uncommon then than now, when a dozen flowering plants is still a show of which kings may be proud. Mr. Bartholomeus punctually fulfilled his instructions, collected some forty plants with their spikes well developed, attached them to strips of wood which he nailed across shallow boxes, and shipped them to San Francisco. Thence they travelled by fast train to New York, and proceeded without a moment's delay to Liverpool on board the Umbria. It was one of her first trips. All went well. Confidently did Mr. Sander anticipate the sensation when a score of those glorious plants were set out in full bloom upon the tables. But, on opening the boxes, he found every spike withered. The experiment is so tempting that it has been essayed once more with a like result. The buds of Loelia ancaps will not stand sea air. 
Catasatums do not rank as a genus among our beauties. In fact, saving Catasatum piliatum, commonly called C. bungerothi, and C. barbatum, I think of none at this moment which are worthy of attraction on that ground. C. fimbriatum, indeed, would be lovely if it could be persuaded to show itself. I have seen one plant which condescended to open its spotted blooms, but only one. No orchids, however, give more material for study. On this account Catasatum was a favourite with Mr. Darwin. It is approved also by unlearned persons who find relief from the monotony of admiration as they stroll round in observing its acrobatic performances. The column bears two horns. If these be touched, the pollen masses fly as if discharged from a catapult. Catasatum piliatum, however, is very handsome. Four inches across, ivory white, with a round well in the centre of its broad lip, which makes a theme for endless speculation. The daring eccentricities of colour in this class of plant have no stronger example than Catasatum callosum, a novelty from Caracas, with inky brown sepals and petals, brightest orange column, labellum of verdigris green, tipped with orange to match. Schomburgias are not often seen. Having a boundless choice of fine things which grow and flower without reluctance, the practical gardener gets irritated in these days when he finds a plant beyond his skill. It is a pity, for the Schomburgias are glorious things, in especial Schomburgia tibinicinis. No description has done its justice, and few are privileged to speak as eyewitnesses. The clustering flowers hang down, sepals and petals of dusky mauve, most gracefully frilled and twisted, encircling a great hollow labellum which ends in a golden drop. That part of the cavity which is visible between the handsome incurved wings has bold stripes of dark crimson. The species is interesting, too. It comes from Honduras, where the children use its great hollow pseudo-bulbs as trumpets, whence the name. At their base is a hole, a touch-hole, as we may say, the utility of which defies our botanists. Had Mr. Belt travelled in those parts, he might have discovered the secret, as in the similar case of the bullthorn, one of the gummiferae. The great thorns of that bush have just such a hole, and Mr. Belt proved by lengthy observations that it is designed, to speak roughly, for the ingress of an ant peculiar to that acacia, whose duty it is to defend the young shoots. Vide Belt's Naturalist in Nicaragua, page 218. Importers are too well aware that Schomburgia tipicinis also is inhabited by an ant of singular ferocity, for it survives the voyage and rushes forth to battle when the case is opened. We may suppose that it performs a like service. Dendrobiums are warm, mostly. Of the hot species, which are many, and the cool, which are few, I have not to speak here, but a remark made at the beginning of this chapter especially applies to dendrobes. If they be started early, so that the young growths are well advanced by June the 1st, if the situation be warm and a part of the house sunny, if they be placed in that part without any shade till July, and freely syringed, with a little extra attention, many of them will do well enough. That is to say, they will make such a show of blossom as is mighty satisfactory in the winter-time. We must not look for specimens, but there should be bloom enough to repay handsomely the very little trouble they give. Among those that may be treated so are Dendrobium wardianum, 
falconeri, crassinodi, pieradii, crystallinum, devonianum, sometimes, and nobile, of course. Probably there are more, but these I have tried myself. Dendrobium wardianum, at the present day, comes almost exclusively from Burma. The neighbourhood of the ruby mines is its favourite habitat, but it was first brought to England from Assam in 1858, when botanists regarded it as a form of Dendrobium falconeri. This error was not so strange as it seems, for the Assamese variety has pseudobulbs much less sturdy than those we are used to see, and they are quite pendulous. It was rather a lively business collecting orchids in Burma before the annexation. The Roman Catholic missionaries established there made it a source of income, and they did not greet an intruding stranger with warmth. Not genial warmth, at least. He was forbidden to quit the town of Barmu, an edict which compelled him to employ native collectors, in fact coolies, himself waiting helplessly within the walls. But his reverend rivals, having greater freedom and an acquaintance with the language, organized a corps of skirmishers to prowl round and intercept the natives returning with their loads. Doubtless somebody received the value when they made a haul, but who is uncertain, perhaps, and the stranger was disappointed anyhow. It may be believed that unedifying scenes arose, especially on two or three occasions, when an agent had almost reached one of the four gates before he was intercepted. For the hapless collector, having nothing in the world to do, haunted those portals all day long, flying from one to the other in hope to see somebody coming. Very droll, but Burma is a warm country for jests of the kind. Thus it happened occasionally that he beheld his own discomfiture, and rows ensued at the mission-house. At length Mr. Sander addressed a formal petition to the Austrian archbishop, to whom the missionaries owed allegiance. He received a sympathetic answer, and some assistance. From the ruby mines also comes a dendrobium so excessively rare that I name it only to call the attention of employees in the new company. This is Dendrobium rhodoterygium. The Trevor Lawrence has, or had, a plant, I believe. There are two or three at St. Albans, but the lists of other dealers will be searched in vain. Sir Trevor Lawrence also had a scarlet species from Burma, but it died even before the christening, and no second has yet been found. Sumatra furnishes a scarlet dendrobe, D. forstermanni, but it again is of the utmost rarity. Baron Schroeder boasts three specimens, which have not yet flowered, however. From Burma comes Dendrobium brimerianum, of which the story is brief, but very thrilling if we ponder it a moment, for the missionaries sent this plant to Europe without a description. They had not seen the bloom, doubtless, and it sold cheap enough. We may fancy Mr. Brimer's emotion, therefore, when the striking flower opened. Its form is unique, though some other varieties display a long fringe, as that extraordinary object, Nanodes medusae, and also Brassavola digbiana, which is exquisitely lovely sometimes. In the case of Dendrobium brimerianum, the bright yellow lip is split all round for two-thirds of its expanse into twisted filaments. We may well ask what on earth is nature's purpose in this eccentricity, but it is a question that arises every hour to the most thoughtless being who grows orchids. Everybody knows Dendrobium nobile so well that it is not to be discussed in prose. 
something might be done in poetry perhaps by young gentlemen who sing of buttercups and daisies but the rhyme would be difficult dendrobium nobile nobilius however is by no means so common would it were this glorified form turned up among an importation made by messieurs rollison they propagated it and sold four small pieces which are still in cultivation but the troubles of that renowned firm to which we owe so great a debt had already begun the mother plant was neglected it had fallen into such a desperate condition when Monsieur Rollison's plants were sold under a decree in bankruptcy that the great dealers refused to bid for what should have been a little gold mine. A casual market gardener hazarded thirty shillings, brought it round so far that he could establish a number of young plants, and sold the parent for forty pounds at last. There are, however, several fine varieties of Dendrobium nobile more valuable than nobilius, Dendrobium nobile sanderianum resembles that form, but it is smaller and darker. Albinos have been found. Baron Schroeder has a beautiful example. One appeared at Stephen's Rooms, announced as the single instance in cultivation, which is not quite the fact, but near enough for the auction room, perhaps. It also was imported originally by Mr. Sander with Dendrobium nobile sanderianum. Biddings reached forty-three pounds but the owner would not deal at the price. Albinos are rare among the dendrobes. Dendrobium nobile cooksoni was the fons et origo of an unpleasant misunderstanding. It turned up in the collection of Mr. Lang, distinguished by a reversal of the ordinary scheme of colour. There is actually no end to the delightful vagaries of these plants. If people only knew what interest and pleasing excitement attends the inflorescence of an imported orchid, one, that is, which has not bloomed before in Europe, they would crowd the auction-rooms, in which every strange face is marked now. There are books enough to inform them, certainly, but who reads an orchid-book? Even the enthusiast only consults it. Dendrobium nobile cooksoni, then, has white tips to petal and sepal, the crimson spot keeps its place, and the inside of the flower is deep red, an inversion of the usual colouring. Mr. Lang could scarcely fail to observe this peculiarity, but he seems to have thought little of it. Mr. Cookson, paying him a visit, was struck, however, as well he might be, and expressed a wish to have the plant. So the two distinguished amateurs made an exchange. Mr. Cookson sent a flower at once to Professor Reichenbach, who, delighted and enthusiastic, registered it upon the spot under the name of the gentleman from whom he received it. Mr. Lang protested warmly, demanding that his discovery should be called after his residence, Heathfieldsianum, but Professor Reichenbach dryly refused to consider personal questions, and really, seeing how short is life and how long Dendrobium nobile Heathfield, etc., true philanthropists will hold him justified. We may expect wondrous dendrobes from New Guinea. Some fine species have already arrived, and others have been sent in the dried inflorescence. Of D. phalaenopsis schroederi I have spoken elsewhere. There is D. goldii, a variety of D. superbiens, but much larger. There is Dendrobius albertsii, snow-white, D. broomfieldianum, curiously like Loelia anceps alba in its flower, which is to say that it must be the loveliest of all dendrobes. But this species has a further charm, almost incredible. The lip in some varieties is washed with lavender blue, 
in some with crimson. Another is nearly related to Dendrobium bigibum, but much larger with sepals more acute. Its hue is a glorious rosy purple, deepening on the lip, the side lobes of which curl over and meet, forming a cylindrical tube, while the middle lobe, prolonged, stands out at right angles, veined with very dark purple. This has just been named D. Staterianum. It has upon the disc an elevated hairy crest, like D. bigibum, but instead of being white, as always, more or less, in that instance the crest of the new species is dark purple. I have been particular in describing this noble flower, because very, very few have beheld it. Those who live will see marvels when the Dutch and German portions of New Guinea are explored. Recently I have been privileged to see another, the most impressive to my taste, of all the lovely genus. It is called Dendrobium atroviolaceum. The stately flowers hang down their heads, reflexed like a turban lily, ten or a dozen on a spike. The colour is ivory white, with a faintest tinge of green, and green spots are dotted all over. The lobes of the lip curl in, making half the circumference of a funnel, the outside of which is dark violet blue. With that fine colour the lip itself is boldly striped. They tell me that the public is not expected to catch on to this marvel. It hangs its head too low, and the contrast of hues is too startling. If that be so, we multiply schools of art, and county council lectures perambulate the realm in vain. The artistic sense is denied us. Madagascar also will furnish some astonishing novelties. It has already begun, in fact, with a vengeance. Imagine a scarlet cymbidium. That such a wonder existed has been known for some years, and three collectors have gone in search of it. Two died, and the third has been terribly ill since his return to Europe, but he won the treasure, which we shall behold in good time. Those parts of Madagascar which especially interest botanists must be death-traps indeed. Monsieur Leon Umblo tells how he dined at Tamatave with his brother and six compatriots, exploring the country with various scientific aims. Within twelve months he was the only survivor. One of these unfortunates, travelling on behalf of Mr. Cutler, the celebrated naturalist of Bloomsbury Street, to find butterflies and birds, shot at a native idol, as the report goes. The priests soaked him with paraffin and burnt him on a table, perhaps their altar. Monsieur Umblo himself has had awful experiences. He was attached to the geographical survey directed by the French government, and ten years ago he found Phagus humblotii, and phagus tuberculosus in the deadliest swamps of the interior. A few of the bulbs gathered lived through the passage home, and caused much excitement when offered for sale at Stephen's auction rooms. Monsieur Umblot risked his life again, and secured a great quantity for Mr. Sander, but at a dreadful cost. He spent twelve months in the hospital at Mayotte, and on arrival at Marseilles with his plants, the doctors gave him no hope of recovery. Phagus umblotii is a marvel of beauty, rose-pink, with a great crimson labellum, exquisitely frilled, and a bright green column. Everybody who knows his Darwin is aware that Madagascar is the chosen home of the Angricums. All, indeed, are natives of Africa, so far as I know, excepting the delightful Angricum falcatum, which comes, strangely enough, from Japan. 
one cannot but suspect under the circumstances that this species was brought from africa ages ago when the japanese were enterprising seamen and has been acclimatized by those skilful horticulturists it is certainly odd that the only cool irides the only one found i believe outside of india and the eastern tropics also belongs to japan and a cool dendrobe a arcuatum is found in the transvaal and i have reason to hope that another or more will turn up when south africa is thoroughly searched a pink angricum very rarely seen dwells somewhere on the west coast the only species so far as i know which is not white it bears the name of monsieur du chailu who found it he has forgotten where unhappily i took that famous traveller to st albans in the hope of quickening his recollection and i fear i bored him afterwards with categorical inquiries but all was vain monsieur du chailu can only recall that once on a time when just starting for europe it occurred to him to run into the bush and strip the trees indiscriminately mr sander was prepared to send a man expressly for this angricum the exquisite angricum sanderianum is a native of the comoro islands no flower could be prettier than this nor more deliciously scented when scented it is it grows in a climate which travellers describe as paradise and in truth it becomes such a scene those who behold young plants with graceful garlands of snowy bloom twelve to twenty inches long are prone to fall into raptures but imagine it as a long established specimen appears just now at st albans with racemes drooping two and a half feet from each new growth clothed on either side with flowers like a double train of white long-tailed butterflies hovering angricum scottianum comes from zanzibar discovered i believe by sir john kirk a cordatum from sierra leone this latter species is the nearest rival of angricum sesquipedale showing tails ten inches long next in order for this characteristic detail rank a leonis and cotchii the latter rarely grown with seven inch tails scottianum and elicii with six inch that is to say they ought to show such dimensions respectively whether they fulfil their promise depends upon the grower with the exceptions named this family belongs to madagascar it has a charming distinction shared by no other genus which i recall save in less degree cattleya every member is attractive but i must concentrate myself on the most striking that which fascinated darwin in the first place it should be pointed out that savants call this plant iranthus sesquipedalis not angricum a fact useful to know but unimportant to ordinary mortals it was discovered by the rev mr ellis and sent home alive nearly thirty years ago but civilized mankind has not yet done wondering at it the stately growth the magnificent green-white flowers command admiration at a glance but the tail or spur offers a problem of which the thoughtful never tire it is commonly ten inches long sometimes fourteen inches and at home i have been told even longer about the thickness of a goose-quill hollow of course the last inch and a half filled with nectar studying this appendage by the light of the principles he had laid down darwin ventured on a prophecy which roused special mirth among the unbelievers not only the abnormal length of the nectary had to be considered there was besides the fact that all its honey lay at the base a foot or more from the orifice 
accepting it as a postulate that every detail of the apparatus must be equally essential for the purpose it had to serve, he made a series of experiments which demonstrated that some insect of Madagascar, doubtless a moth, must be equipped with a proboscis long enough to reach the nectar, and at the same time thick enough at the base to withdraw the pollinia, thus fertilising the bloom. For if the nectar had lain so close to the orifice that moths with a proboscis of reasonable length and thickness could get at it, they would drain the cup without touching the pollinia. Darwin never proved his special genius more admirably than in this case. He created an insect beyond belief, as one may say, by the force of logic, and such absolute confidence had he in his own syllogism that he declared, if such great moths were to become extinct in Madagascar, assuredly this angricum would become extinct. I am not aware that Darwin's fine argument has yet been clinched by the discovery of that insect, but Cavill has ceased. Long before his death, a sphinx moth arrived from South Brazil, which shows a proboscis between ten and eleven inches long, very nearly equal, therefore, to the task of probing the nectary of angricum sesquipedale, and we know enough of orchids at this time to be absolutely certain that the Madagascar species must exist. End of section 8 The second section of chapter 5